Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining with us for this week's podcast. As per usual, before we begin our time together, I just want to take a moment to let you know a bit of what's coming up in our community in the next little bit. This week, we want to highlight a giving opportunity for the Calgary Vietnamese Alliance Church. Some of you may know there was a fire last summer and they lost their facility. So as a district and as churches within our district, we're helping to get them back up and running. So if you want to give to that, please visit our website or realm. Next weekend, June 4th and 5th, is our Pentecost weekend. If you haven't been baptized and you'd like to take that step, this is the weekend to do it. We have everything you need, and all you need to do is show up and say you want to be baptized. So I hope you'll join us. Finally, our speaker this weekend is Dr. Bill McAlpine. He's no stranger to us. He was a professor at Ambrose University and has served on our Board of Elders over the years, so we're thrilled to have him join us. The best way to know what's going on at Southview is by checking out our weekly viewpoint, and you can find a link to that viewpoint in the episode description of this podcast. And if you are new with us here in this digital space, we would love to hear from you. You can find an online connection card at the bottom of the viewpoint, along with a prayer request form so that we can support and join you in prayer. And additionally, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. But now, today, no matter how you're joining with us, may each of our hearts be open and expectant because God is here and Jesus invites us to bring all that we are and all that we're currently carrying to him. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, let's seek the face of God together. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for making the effort to join us today. It's my delight and privilege once again to be able to share the word with you. And as we do this word, our thinking together today is going to, as so often it does, lead us to the high point of our gathering, which is around the Lord's Supper, where we remember and we participate and are blessed in the death and resurrection of Jesus. But for our time together, I'd like to begin by asking you this question. I wonder what your answer would be if I were to ask you, what is the central, pivotal, essential, non-negotiable thing that God wants from you and from me? In other words, what is God calling you and me to do? These past several weeks, we've been enjoying the rich teaching on what on a series we've entitled the stories from god on some of the parables that jesus taught as recorded for us in the gospels at the risk of oversimplifying things i would suggest that the gist of what jesus is saying in those things answers the in those parables answers this question of what is it that god is calling us to do or to be now depending on the parable we could find something almost different in every one that seems to be the focus. So if you'll allow me to land on what I think is the linchpin, if you will, this, uh, of what God is wanting of you and for me, we're going to approach this by looking at two scripture passages together. We're going to look at one, first of all, in Mark's gospel, and I'll refer it to in just a moment. And then we're going to jump over to the book of Acts and these two here together. So, first of all, if you have your Bibles or your device or whatever, if you want to just follow along, we're going to be reading from Mark's Gospel, chapter 3. And before I read our text, I want just a little bit of background. When we start in verse 7, we would see that 
Jesus is having an incredible ministry, so much so because of his teaching and healing that there is a massive crowd that is pressing in on him. They're beside the sea. So Jesus directs his disciples to get a boat ready for him to go and sit in it from which he can teach because as scripture said, lest the crowd were to crush him. And yet in the midst of this phenomenal ministry that's going on, we pick up where I'd like us to focus in verse 13 of Mark chapter 3. And remember, dear friends, as we read this, this is the word of God. Verse 13 of Mark chapter 3 says the following, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and to have authority over demons. Now, if you will, let's jump a few books ahead, turn to the right, a couple of doors down, and come to the book of Acts. And we're going to look in Acts chapter 4, and again, I'm going to land on just one or two verses. But allow me to give, paint the, the background and the backdrop to where this happens. In chapter 3 of Acts, Peter and John are going up to the temple for the hour of prayer. They did this often. And every day there was a man that was brought there who had been lame from birth, expecting to receive alms. Peter looks at him. He says, listen, friend, look at me. He says, fix your eyes on me. I don't have silver and gold to give you, but what I do have, I give you this. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And he heals him. He put out his hand and he lifted him up. The man starts immediately going into the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. It causes quite a commotion because, you know, we don't do that at our church. We don't do that walking and leaping and praising God stuff. So a crowd gathers around and Peter preaches a spirit-filled sermon that not only rivets the attention of those who are there, but it gains the attention of the religious council of the day and they weren't pleased. So in chapter four, we read that the council calls these two guys and they stand before them. And once again, they wax eloquent and they preach another sermon and they, and they are so powerful that this is where I want to pick up in verse 13 of Acts chapter four. And this is what we read. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Now, there is a phrase in both of those passages that I want us to land on, and it's simply this phrase. In Mark's gospel, it said, Jesus called his disciples, yes, to preach, and to cast out demons, but first and foremost, he called them to do this, to be with him, to be with him. When we come into the Acts account, what was it that stood out in the minds of the people who witnessed these guys preaching and teaching and responding? It says they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So that phrase, with Jesus, or with him, I want to suggest is going to be the focus of our thinking together today. And I'm going to suggest that, dear friends, is the fundamental, essential, non-negotiable that God wants for you and for me. But that should raise the question, so what does that mean? What does that mean to be with Jesus? Yes, Christ called the disciples that he might send them out and preach and have authority over demons. But I believe when Mark wrote that, he was saying a lot more than just that they would tag along with Jesus. They would be in Jesus' company. They would go where he went. It was much deeper. 
So to answer the question then, what does it mean to be with Jesus? Let me suggest two elements. First of all, we will look at the essence of being with Jesus. What is the essence of what it means to be with Jesus? Now, I think it's important that we bear in mind that being with Jesus is likely going to look somewhat different from one person to the next. And that's why I've hesitated to use my own example of being with Jesus, lest it be taken as a template or an example to follow, because how I am with Jesus, my experience of, if I can, the withness of Jesus might be very different from yours and vice versa. There will be commonalities, and that's what we want to look at, of course. But the reason I say this in part is because being with someone has changed significantly over the last number of years. Several years ago when I was a college student attending Columbia Bible College in South Carolina, I was facing two critical decisions, life-directing or changing decisions. And I was on the phone to my mom and dad. They were living in Toronto. I'm in Columbia, South Carolina. And partway through the conversation, my dad said to me, and he often would say this, son, mom and I are with you. I'd, well, I'd say, no, dad, you're in Toronto. I'm in Columbia. You're not with me in that sense. So what did he mean? Well, we'd say he was with me in spirit. He was praying for me. He was behind me. See, you and I live in a world, folks, I am afraid is in grave danger of losing a sense of what it means to be with someone. We live more and more in a two-dimensional world. We are with people through the internet. I don't know about you, I'm zoomed out. In fact, zoom has become my cuss word. If I feel like an expletive, zoom works wonderfully. But... I, I don't want you to hear what I'm going to say next as an indicator of my ad, of strong aversion to the technological advances in which we live and that are changing the way we do things. But like anything good and helpful, there are always going to be some of those downsides or needs for caution. And I recently heard someone say that those of us who are boomers, I'm a boomer, and perhaps even the Gen X generation, we are what some have called technological immigrants. We have been forced into a culture. We have been forced to learn another language that is not our mother tongue. My kids, however, and especially my grandkids, for them, the world which I've been forced into as an immigrant, the, the social media is the milieu in which they speak their mother tongue. See? Now, to any of my generation, boomer, Gen X, whatever, I would say this. Listen, friend, get used to it. This is not going away. But to the younger generations coming after me, I would say this. Listen, God's calling you first and foremost to be with him. Don't allow all these advances that are coming in like tsunami-type force to blur or hinder or confuse the wonder and the experience of being with Christ. So what's my concern? Well, social scientists, medical professionals have identified two concerns with regard to particularly social media. One is distraction, and the other is addiction. Distraction and addiction. 
John Mark Comer, in his book entitled The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, cites an article that was written in uh, July 2016 issue of Business Insider. And in that article, the author cites a survey that was conducted among 100,000 Americans across generations. You know, one of their findings was this, that the average person touches his or her phone, how many times do you think a day? This survey suggested 2,617 times a day. That works out to two and a half hours over 76 sessions. That's the average. They suggested from the research that for millennials, it doubled. Now, medical people have also identified what they call a disease, a sickness that's associated with the culture in which we live, and it's a disease they call hurry sickness. Hurry sickness. Let me give you two definitions that they have come up with. Hurry sickness is defined by one definition as a behavior pattern characterized by continual rushing and anxiousness. And a second definition, a malaise in which a person feels chronically short of time and so tends to perform every task faster and get flustered when encountering any kind of delay. Now, no elbowing the person next to you. You know, frustrated. You know, like the person, the inconsiderate person who has the unmitigated goal of sticking to the speed limit. Don't, don't they know that when it says 100 kilometers an hour, that's a suggestion. You know anybody like this? Hurry sickness. Okay, Bill, you may be saying, ah, we were talking about being with Jesus. So what does all this stuff have to do with Jesus? Try to follow with me if you can. I think there's a principle where this lands. I see a sequence in our walk with the Lord that begins like this. It begins by being with Jesus that will lead to being like Jesus that will lead to doing for Jesus. Being with, being like, doing for. And I'm afraid far too often our emphasis has been on the last two being like Jesus, and doing for Jesus, doing stuff for Jesus. And it's in that last realm, that doing for Jesus, that I see this hurry sickness being most keenly felt. See, our tendency, I would suggest, is that we dive into doing quote-unquote stuff for Jesus and even attempting to be like Jesus, to imitate Jesus in and of our own strength without giving adequate or proper attention to the fact that what he has called us, first of all, is to be with him, with him. So again, you may ask with some mild exasperation, so Bill, what does that mean to be with him? Let me take you to an example in the life of Jesus. Luke records the account in the 10th chapter of his gospel, where Jesus is visiting in the home of Mary and Martha. Some of you remember the story. Martha's in the kitchen, and Luke says, she was distracted by, with her much preparation, with her much serving. And she comes to Jesus and asks a rhetorical question. She says to him out loud, where's Mary? Well, Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus. Martha is where in that culture women ought to be, in the kitchen. Mary was where in that culture only men ought to be, at the feet of the rabbi. Wow. So 
Martha comes to Jesus and then asks the rhetorical question. She says this, do you not care that my sister has left everything for me to do? Tell her to help me. You know that phrase, do you not care? It's a rhetorical question. The better way to say it is this, Jesus, you don't care. My sister's left everything to me. You tell her to help me. Hey, have you ever felt like praying that prayer? You think of someone in your life, you think, Jesus, tell that person. You tell that person. Hmm. Mary Martha Sorry was intensely involved in doing for Jesus. Mary was intent on being with him. Now listen, I want to clarify something here. I don't think that this passage says there's no place for Marthas. In fact, where would the church be without our Marthas? What I'm saying to the Marthas, well, what I'm saying to Mary, first of all, is make sure you're paying attention to what needs to be done. But to the Marthas, I would say this. You don't have to stop your serving. You don't have to stop your much serving to be with Jesus. Being with Jesus does not imply or require a reclusive or a passive posture. Let me explain what I mean. Jesus talked to his disciples in the upper room in John 15, 14 to 17 is the upper room discourse. In chapter 15, he gives this analogy of the vine and the branches, right? Remember that? And he says, listen, as the vine, as the branch abides in the vine, so you need to abide in me. In the first 11 verses of that chapter 15 of John, 10 times Jesus uses the word abide, abide. And among the several truths that I think Jesus is emphasizing in his verse, one that stands out is this fruitfulness of any kind is categorically impossible in the absence of abiding or being with Christ. It is ludicrous to think of a branch producing fruit in isolation from the vine. It is equally ludicrous, folks, for us to think that we can produce any kind of fruit of the Spirit, fruit that pleases, doing stuff, if you will, for Jesus in the absence of us abiding in him. Jesus said, abide in me and I abide in you. Let my word abide in you. But again, the question, what does that look like? I am not recommending, as I've said, a reclusive refusal to engage in the realm of cyberspace. Quite frankly, all that can do is serve uh, to foster a posture that is unfortunately counter and non-productive in reaching the culture we're wanting to reach. But one writer has wisely said this, abiding in Christ or being with Jesus is like being in two places at the same time. I don't necessarily or always have to remove myself from a location or a situation to be with Jesus. One of the most powerful little booklets that I was introduced to way, way back in my college days, and I try to read it at least once a year, is written by a a dear brother named Brother Lawrence, 13th or 14th century dishwasher for monks in a monastery. He wrote a little booklet, some of you are familiar with it, I'm sure, entitled The Practice of the Presence of God. If you haven't read it, let me encourage you to get a hold of it. And in there he says this, let me give you this one quote. He says this, all right, this is a dishwasher in a monastery. The time of business does not with me differ from the time of prayer. 
and in the noise and clatter of my kitchen while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in as great a tranquility as if I were on my knees at the blessed sacrament. What Brother Lawrence is saying is this. I don't have to leave the sink where I'm washing dishes in order to be with Jesus. In fact, when all that stuff's going around me, I know I can and I am. I'm with him. The essence of being with Jesus. Perhaps this will become clearer if we look secondly, what is the evidence of being with Jesus? All right, the essence of being with Jesus, it is a conscious, intentional positioning myself, knowing I'm in his presence, regardless of what I'm doing. Well, what's the evidence? Well, for this, let's go back to the fourth chapter of Acts. Pick up in verse 13, which we read earlier. Let me just read it once again. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished, and they recognized they had been with Jesus. Okay, here's my question. What was the evidence? What gave those people there cause to recognize they had been with Jesus. Well, I think first of all, what is it that would reflect in our lives that would cause people to say about us, ah, that person's been with Jesus. My wife deserves a husband that when she looks at me says, okay, that, I know my husband's been with Jesus. My kids should be able to look at me and say, I know my dad's been with Jesus, and I want my grandkids to know what an older person looks like who's been with Jesus. Well, what was it that the disciples, that these two disciples demonstrated? There are two words that are used by Luke here, and it says they recognize them as, first of all, uneducated. That word literally means illiterate, and not necessarily in the literal sense, but in terms of the law. They were illiterate. They were fishermen. And no one would expect them to be able to tangle with the religious leaders of the day, but that's exactly what they did. And it says they were common, common people. They were people of the land. They were not expected to be able to uh, think about, to talk about, to engage what the Old Testament rabbinical laws were all about. You know, it's the same description that was given to Jesus by the people who listened to his teaching. And it says, John 7, 15, the Jews therefore marveled saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Now, let me give a footnote just at this point. Any young people that are listening to me, don't you dare use this verse and throw it in your parents' face and saying, hey, mom, I'm just going to be like Jesus. You never studied. I'm just being like Jesus. Don't do that. Don't do that. That's not the point. The word common, these were common in the people's minds, uneducated people. But what gave the people cause to think they've been with Jesus is that they sounded like Jesus in the way they knew the scriptures. They knew the word of God. But they also demonstrated, like Jesus, not only a knowledge of the scriptures, they demonstrated compassion. They healed this man. They healed this man. And they let this man come with them. Verse 14 says, But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they, gave, they had nothing 
to say in opposition. Listen, dear friends, Jesus' teaching was always accompanied by compassion for those in need. And sometimes, as often as not, those in need were the lowlife, the tax collectors, the publicans, the sinners, the prostitutes, so that Jesus earned the title. He's known as the friend of sinners. They meant it as a slam. What greater compliment could be given to us as a church is if we were, people looked at us and said, oh, that's what being with Jesus looks like. They're friends of sinners. The evidence that they had been with Jesus, folks, is perhaps going to be seen in what John described in the first chapter of his gospel, verse 14, when he says, And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. Glory, we think of glory, his power, his majesty, his authority, his No, he says, his glory, which was what? Full of grace and truth. I believe with all my heart that the evidence that we have been with Jesus is a life that is full of grace and truth. I'm grateful for my upbringing, ever so grateful for my upbringing, but I grew up in a tradition that was really heavy on the truth. Got to be careful of that grace. You know, that's a slippery slope into compromise. But boy, do we know the truth. We know the truth, and gratefully, we had the truth because we knew the truth. Well, being with Jesus is going to be evidenced by a life that is full of grace and truth. But you know, being with Jesus also, folks, is going to foster in us the capacity to hear his voice. I love the image that Jesus uses in John 10 when he talks about the shepherd and the sheep. Jesus said, look, my sheep, they hear my voice, they know my voice, and they follow me. How does a sheep know the shepherd's voice? There's no shortcut. It's not an easy fix. You don't take a seminar, read a book, hear a sermon. How does a sheep get to know the shepherd's voice? It's quite simply, they spend time with the shepherd. You know, in, in the Psalm, the 23rd Psalm, where David says, he restores my soul, that word restores is a medical term. It's used to describe a bone that has been broken, properly set, and mended, and healed. Why would David use a word like that? He restores my soul. Likely because of this reason. If a shepherd were to have a recalcitrant lamb that refused to listen to the shepherd's voice, what would the shepherd do? Well, here's what the shepherd typically would do. He would lovingly pick up that precious, fluffy, white little lamb and lovingly break its leg, reset it, and carry that lamb in his cloak so that that lamb, and until that lamb, would know and follow his voice. And David says, my soul sometimes needs to be restored. And he does. He restores me by making sure I am with him. Well, how does all this work out? How is this possible? I... I am reminded of what David the psalmist said in Psalm 46, verse 10. Some of you will know this. Be still and know that I am God. It, the word literally means stop 
striving or cease striving. Put your hands down and know that I am God. How do you do that? How, how good are we at being still in the presence of God? Just being with him, being still with him. We, one of our sons was diagnosed with ADD when he was about grade seven. Having lived with that and looking back on my own life and reading some of my own report cards back in elementary and junior high school, I'm pretty convinced I suffer from that attention deficiency. One of the hardest things for me to do is to be still. And I suspect I've got a lot of company to cease striving. Well, what's making you striving right now? What's got you in knots right now? What God wants from you and from me first and foremost is to be with him. To be with him. And to know that he is God. That's a magnificent word. Know. It's the Hebrew word yada. Many nuances including the one in Genesis where it says Adam knew his wife and she conceived. It's an intimate being with, and it's an experiential knowledge of God. Dear friends, I think this is the essence, the fundamental non-negotiable, what God's calling you and me, and that is to be with Christ. Not in glory, just only. Not in heaven when Christ comes back, but right now, right now without any regard for what we might be going through. And quite frankly, I think one of the most precious and beautiful demonstrations of and experiences of being with Jesus is to come to this table and to partake in these elements. And I'm going to invite you to join me as we do. We're reminded in Paul's letter to the first Corinthians that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And he, when he had broke it, he blessed it and gave thanks and said, take and eat. This is my body and it's broken for you. In the same manner, after he had supped, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant, the new testament in my blood. Do this often, and as often as you drink it, remember me. And then Paul adds this word, for as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you do, literally, you preach the Lord's death. How long? Until he comes. So as we partake together, let me pray first, and then I'll invite you to take the emblems that you have before you. Let me pray. Gracious Father in heaven, what a gift it is to be able to in our homes or wherever we are gathered together to not only remember but to participate in what you have done and to receive from you that which you have given us. Father, we're not asking you to be with us. You promised that you would be, so we thank you that you are. And we pray you will bless us as we partake of these emblems. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would take bread, which you may have before you, and as you do, let me remind you folks, this is the body of Christ, and it's broken for you. Receive from him with grateful hearts. Let's partake together.
And in the same manner, after supper, he took the cup when he had given thanks and said, take this cup. This cup is the new covenant, the new agreement, the new testament in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Receive from him through the cup of our Lord. Amen. And amen. I pray for your dear friends that this week, these days ahead, you would know the incredible joy of what it really means in the midst of hurry, in the midst of anxiety, in the midst of speculations, in the midst of all the news, horrible as the news has been this past week. Let's remember to pray for those who are suffering the loss of children these days. But let's do so with this sound confidence that we are with Christ. And as he promised, he is with us. So my benediction and my blessing for you is this. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face turn upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance and give you his incredible peace. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you.